We come to this place for magic. We come to this podcast to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that, that indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim, dazzling images on a huge silver screen. Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this, and stories feel perfect and powerful. Because here they are. He's looking at you. What do you think about what last in your seat is? It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm the king of the world! And welcome to the second episode of In a Place Like This. I'm Chris Michael Smith. I am joined today by Logan Belitho. Tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Logan Belitho. Uh, I am a army captain in the United States Army, if you couldn't tell. And uh, I love all things nerdy, movie, and uh, sci-fi. Nice. Uh, you're a fan of Dune, right? Oh, yeah. Which love is it. Excited to have you today. We're here to talk about Dune today. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, well, like I said before, I love sci-fi and horror, so uh, I've always loved uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. Oh, nice, It's always nice. been my favorite movie. That's going to tie into our conversation today, actually. Yes. All right. Um, is there something else you'd like to briefly geek out about? Well, I, uh, like I said before, I am a nerd in all senses of the word, and I have a very extensive board game collection, as we are looking at right now. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> I've got over 30 different board games, and I love teaching people and playing them whenever I can. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box. He who controls the space, controls the universe. I will kill him! So, you definitely know more about the Dune novels than I do. Um, I've only seen the movies. So, uh, would you like to do the honors on the history of Dune? Sure. So, I've only read the first two so far, but I've done a lot of extensive reading online about the rest of the books, and uh, it's an epic in all senses of the word. It's uh, titled as one of the most epic sci-fi fiction series to ever come out of an author. So, I mean, Frank Herbert wrote it back in 1965. Um, He wrote five books before he uh, ended up dying. Uh, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune, God Emperor Dune, Heretics of Dune, and Chapter House Dune were all the sequels to the original. Then he... uh, died in 1986, but then his son, Brian Herbert, found about several thousand pages of notes left by his father on the series outlining his ideas for any other narratives related to Dune, and so he wrote a couple of prequel novels, and then he also finished out the series with Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune, so a total of uh, nine books. That's a lot. It reminds me of of a Tolkien Yes. Didn't his son finish some of his books too? I believe so, yes. He created an entire universe around this book series. Nice. Uh, What I got from uh, my research on that is that it won a Hugo... It tied with uh, this book called The Immortal for a Hugo Award. Mm -hmm. And also was the first Nebula Award for Best Novel. Yes. So, yeah, it's a pretty epic book series. So, in the 1970s, Alejandro Jodorowsky, uh, he's a filmmaker who made a lot of surrealist Western movies like El Topo. 
Uh, he was kind of given carte blanche to make whatever movie he wanted to make, and the movie he wanted to make was Dune. He wanted to make this, like, an LSD experience without actually taking LSD. That's how he described it. Like, I, a lot of this information is coming from the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, and he says in that documentary that's what he wanted to do. Oh, wow. He was assembling this team together. Like, he got artists like H.R. Uh, Geiger, Chris Foss, uh, Jean... I think it's Mabius Giraud, uh, and a VFX artist, Dan O'Bannon, but uh, he assembled these actors and actually got them interested in being in the movie, like uh, Orson Welles, David Carradine, Gloria Swanson, Mick Jagger. Uh, he was going to cast his son as Paul, and uh, Salvador Dali was going to be in it, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's definitely an all-star cast. Yeah. For back in that day. And he got, he, he put together this giant book that's like all these designs, all these storyboards, like people who've seen the book describe it as you're watching the movie is how intricate these storyboards are. Mm. Because studios kind of got cold feet on it, they ended up passing on the project. So oh. he never got a chance to make it. That's too bad. Dune has been described as like one of those books that like cannot be filmed. I have heard that before, yes. I feel like... That's not the case. I think it's more like the people who wanted to make it didn't have the money to make it, and the people with the money to make it didn't want to make it. That would make sense. I mean, I think the key thing, and this was what thing I described to you and some of the other guys that we went to see it with, was if you haven't read the book or know much about the universe, it can be a little bit daunting to see. And so I kind of have a feeling that most of these people in Hollywood that weren't part of the project, they probably looked at what they were doing and were like, I can't follow any of this. What's yeah. going on? Because, I mean, it's such a huge scoping world and so many nuanced things that are only referenced once or twice even in the book but have lasting impacts along the entire series. Yeah, especially when you have, like, this surrealist filmmaker at the helm. It's like... Studios are going to be like, this is not accessible to normal audiences. So he was taking an already surrealist yeah. kind of project and making it even more surrealist. Yeah. Uh, also, for music, he was tapping into Pink Floyd and Magma. <laughs> so, yeah, it's oh like my gosh. he had some big ideas there. So a lot of the team that he assembled for this movie after it after it fell apart and they ended up not making it. Uh, they came together and would work on Alien. Oh, really? Yeah. So H.R. Geiger, Dan O'Bannon, Mab um, Mobius, Mabius, they were all involved with Alien. Oh, man. Then I would have loved to see this Dune if they all yeah. were on the same team. Dang. Yeah. it's um, And if you look at some of the designs as presented in the movie, they made their rounds around Hollywood. So mm -hmm. even though this movie never got made you see bits and pieces of it in other sci-fi fantasy movies mm -hmm. uh, like Star Wars, um, uh, Flash Gordon. It even goes as far as like Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Like because one of the set pieces in that is like almost identical to something that shows up in, uh, in those storyboards. Wow. So to me, I feel like this is like one of the most influential sci-fi movies of all time considering it was never made in the first place. Well, I know they were saying when they were filming the new Dune that they tried to keep a lot of the 
artwork like of the spaceship designs and stuff like that to some of the original concept art from yeah. the original ones so they probably took quite a bit of you know artistic design from this movie that never happened yeah oh that definitely wouldn't surprise me at all I, I believe they specifically referenced like the enormous spaceship you see in the one scene where it's the giant circular hole in the middle and you see all the ships coming down to dune yeah that was an original reference that they used yeah i also feel like that big giant scope that they use like how that that world just seems so vast Mm -hmm. that feels like that comes directly from jodorowsky so for this podcast i also wanted to look at the David Lynch, 1984 film. You mean the one where he took his name off the project after it bombed? Yeah, he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to either, but I, I definitely feel like it's uh, one of those movies that everybody loves to hate on, but still wants to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jodorowsky talked about like when he found out that David Lynch was going to take it, he was freaking out because, oh my God, this filmmaker is going to take my movie and make it better than I would have made it. And then when he watched it, he's like, oh good, it's it's trash. <laughs> that's that's kind of uh you know that's kind of jaded in his respect it's yeah like, oh look i'm so glad that you <laughs> failed and my movie would have done amazing it's like we don't yeah. know that, dude <laughs> it's it's funny too because david lynch is also a really surrealist filmmaker mm-hmm. and dune doesn't look like any other movie he's ever made no and he considers it his like selling out point but kind of looking into it you have this all-star cast you have brad dorif patrick mm-hmm. stewart yep. uh jose ferrer linda hunt virginia madsen sting max von Sydow, and kyle mclaughlin who always he shows up in a lot of david lynch's work including mm-hmm. Tin, uh, twin peaks he played paul yeah um he also kept the whole let's let a rock band do the music except this time he went with toto yeah best yeah. known for blessing the rains down in africa yeah, it definitely, uh, you know, it definitely fit the whole, you know, 80s vibe, but it was not what I would consider to be a sci-fi soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, it, they were trying, I think what they were going for was maybe kind of like what Blade Runner sounded like. I could see that. Blade um, Runner was definitely a mix of, you know, futuristic and also kind of hard rock, <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so... Dino De Laurentiis, who produced the movie, uh, he wanted David Lynch for the project after he saw The Elephant Man. Mm -hmm. And The Elephant Man was just like huge. It was huge at the Oscars the year that it came out. Uh, Mm -hmm. It sort of cemented David Lynch as like a serious filmmaker. Uh, He was also being courted for Star Wars. Like they wanted him to do Return of the Jedi. And when he took on this project, it was being envisioned as a trilogy and everyone involved... uh, thought they were making kind of a i'm quoting here star wars for grown-ups ah okay i can kind of see that because even in the books the uh the first three books are always described as the original trilogy kind of thing because the first three books follow basically paul's life and then his son but then the as soon as the third book is done Basically, there's a time jump of, like, several million years. Uh, the original cut was... it's a rough, It was a rough cut. It was never supposed to see theaters, but it was four hours long. Uh, but David Lynch did want to make a three-hour movie. That's almost, in my opinion, almost unheard of back in that day. Yeah. It's only, like, nowadays, I feel like, that 
a three-hour movie has really become mainstream. Yeah, and uh, the studio also thought that way, too, because they cut it down to two. Mm-hmm. So they trimmed some scenes. They replaced certain sequences with voiceover narration, uh, which, in my opinion, kind of dumbed it down a little bit. So my first time watching that movie, I remembered, because I watched a three-hour version of it. Mm-hmm. And it was um, I thought that was the director's cut. Mm-hmm. The thing is, there is no director's cut. David Lynch does not want to come back to do it. He wants no. to distance himself from that as much as possible. So that's just a three-hour version of the movie. Mm-hmm. I, w- I will give them credit. I think they made the movie in such a way that people could follow. They yeah. did. They, you know, you say they kind of dumbed it down a little bit, but it, in all sense of the word, I feel like they did make a movie that people could follow. Whereas the new Dune movie that are you know the 2021 edition they stayed very very true to the books and i felt like because i watched it several times with different groups and sometimes i felt like i had to lean over and explain something to someone who had never you know didn't know anything about dune beforehand so while i feel like they did a better job following the source material I can see how it would not be as commercial as that one was. Yeah, um, that I can see that too. It did flop when it was initially released. Yes, it did. Like nobody, yes, nobody it watched did. it. Uh, it's considered the Heaven's Gate of sci-fi. Heaven's Gate being like this huge box office disaster from the guy who directed The Deer Hunter. Yep. Uh, but it did get one Oscar nomination, and that was for best sound. I mean, the sound was good. The sound was very good. <laughs> I felt like they did a very good job with the uh, costuming as well, actually. Um, With the design of some of the creatures and stuff like the... We see the Spacing Guild in that original movie, whereas, you know, in the original book and in the new movie, we don't see the Spacing Guild at all. They're these mysterious figures that even in the books, Paul's like, will I ever see a Spacing Guild person? And his dad's like, they're very secretive and they don't like being seen in any circumstances so you know we're left to basically just interpret them as these things that have been changed by the spice but uh i felt like they did a very good job of describing them as something new you know with the designs of the atreides and the fremen i felt like they did a fairly good job with those figuring out what what a still suit might look like um but some of the things I have to say, like, uh, but <laughs> the biggest travesty in the uh, entire thing that, at least for the costuming, in my opinion, was Thufir Howitt's freaking eyebrows. Those those enormous bushy eyebrows <laughs> yes. that they're like, they're, these weren't eyebrows. These were lashes. These were giant yeah. curved lashes. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, that is the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> When I found when I found this out, I did a double take on it uh, because I'm like, wait, is this the same person? It turns out it is. There was a comic book series based on this movie. Okay. And it was written by Ralph Macchio, really? the Karate Kid himself. Oh my god! Yeah. I guess he was a fan. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it it kind of gets dumped on a lot. Uh, the director distanced himself from it. It's considered mm-hmm. a colossal failure. I think there's something really charming about it, though. And I think it's, for me, it's that 80s sci-fi fantasy aesthetic. Well, it followed a lot of the tropes that 80s movies back then were going for, especially in the sci-fi world, you know. You said, you know, we got Alien around that time, too, and everything. And so, you know, they're trying to 
break into a new world that we had never seen before, a brand new thing for people to be seeing. And we're basically taking a design and going, we can do whatever we want with this because nobody's done it yet. So that was a very exciting time, I feel like, in movies. Even if not everything worked, it was still opening our eyes to what was possible to do in a movie and pushing the boundaries of what people have even thought of before. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Also, I wanted to briefly talk about Patrick Stewart, who looks the same yeah. now as he did now. Yeah, he does. And I'm also a little upset they didn't make him look uglier for the movie because in the books, Gurney Halleck is known for being extremely ugly. So yeah, he I, I feel like that was a little bit of shade on them of uh, casting Patrick Stewart as this ugly dude. And he's not even ugly. Like, he's like, that's, that's Captain Picard. Yeah. All right. And that brings us to 2021. Last year... Denis, I can never get this guy's last name right, Vinouf. Uh Sorry, French. Sounds like one of those names we're not supposed to be able to get. Right. right. Like mine. <laughs> uh, he's already done, like, impossible things in movies. Like, he did Blade Runner 2049, which, mm -hmm. who knew that a sequel to Blade Runner would work? I thought it was amazing. Yeah. It was, it was a little slow-paced at times for me, but I felt like even the original Blade Runner was fairly slow paced it was the slow build up yeah that i enjoyed i enjoyed that a lot and then there was a rival a rival made me interested in linguistics mm -hmm. so yeah he's a really good filmmaker he went and took on uh, his own version of dune after like decades of like false starts and uh, other people coming and going from the project mm -hmm. uh, this one has uh, Rebecca Ferguson Oscar Isaac Dave Batista Josh Brolin Stellan Skarsgård Javier Bardem Zendaya Jason Momoa Charlotte Rampling Timothée Chalamet as Paul yes I, I felt like they did a very good job with the casting on this yes. book I couldn't really find any major differences in the descriptions of the characters in the books as they were in the movies um like I said, Gurney Halleck is supposed to be kind of this rough and tumble mercenary looking guy. So I feel like, you know, he could, it's hard to do with Hollywood, especially if you have a, you know, an ugly character that audiences are supposed to, you know, relate to a little bit and make a likable character out of someone looking ugly like that. So I think that was always going to be a hard thing to cast. But overall, I think they did very good with that. Um, you know, they made the Mentats look good. They, uh... I was very pleased with how they portrayed the uh, the Harkonnens in this one rather than in the last book because <laughs> all that stuff about, you know, weird diseases being beautiful on their faces was complete and other garbage and oh, not gosh. in any of the books at all. <laughs> so I felt like it was very uh, good to see them portrayed differently in this one because the Baron, you know, he's technically, he's a royal house. So, I mean, he's supposed to be this character that rather than just being larger than life in weird ways he's you know a royal figure that you know yeah he's fat but he's also one of the sharpest minds in the universe yeah i i, I noticed that. that's the one thing about that did bother me about the 80s version after watching the new one i'm like are they supposed to have all those warts and stuff all over their faces yeah, well, what's, what's with the weird blood orgy scene yeah that's the weirdest <laughs> thing ever <laughs> Uh, this version of Dune did much better than yes. the last one. Uh, it was a huge box office success, which is amazing considering it was released, if not simultaneously on HBO Max, pretty mm -hmm. close to it. So I would attribute a lot of that to the internet yes. and whatever the 
availability of information in our time now because back when the first one came out you know there wasn't really an internet there wasn't a wikipedia page you could look up on what a movie was going to be about you had to either go read the source material or just go into it blind and now the lead up to this movie had my youtube page flooded with people doing recap videos of the books and you know telling you you know 20 things you need to know before watching the movie and stuff like that you know so i feel like that paved the way for people to actually know what dune was about even if they hadn't read the books before coming in and i think that helped a lot yeah i could see that even going in the first time i was still kind of like lost a little bit i had to, I had to watch it again to actually mm-hmm. understand it but yeah the hype for this movie was mm-hmm. like huge months before it was released all the production stills everyone was like this is going to be like a huge contender at the oscars and usually i don't it was yeah it ended up being yeah it actually it 10 nominations including best picture it won the most awards out of any of the movies that were nominated rightly so i felt it got visual effects sound editing score production design cinematography hans zimmer's score is uh, I was I was really gonna say I mean, out of this let, world. Let's but... let's just let's just say the facts. You know, I don't think I've ever heard a bad Hans Zimmer score. <laughs> that is true too. He's he is really good doing to develop like the the fictional languages. They got David J. Peterson who worked on Game of Thrones. Uh, the screenplay was by Eric Roth who did uh, Forrest Gump, Munich, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and the 2018 version of A Star Is Born. Okay. So he's kind of done all kinds of different movies. Mm-hmm. They got John Spates who worked on Prometheus and Doctor Strange, and Denis Villeneuve himself also nice. co-wrote yes. it. Yeah, it's it was a huge success. I, I felt it was a very good success, and as someone who has read the book and everything, I just. You know, the whole way through, I was seeing even specific uh, conversations between characters that were almost word for word of things in the book. It was just, it was a joy to see, in my opinion. I very much enjoyed it, and I'm sad that until the day we get the next one. Yeah, same. Uh, 2023 is when we're expecting a sequel. Well, that's good. That's not too far away, thankfully. And my understanding (laughs) is they're actually planning a trilogy for this one? I believe what they had said was they're going to finish out the first book in this next movie. And then I believe the plan was to do Dune Messiah as a single movie and finish out the Paul Atreides series. Got it. Because Paul's only in the first two books. I see. Whereas, you know, like I said earlier, they consider the three books to be kind of the trilogy. But really, if you're only following Paul himself that it's just the first two books. And the second book, I can see them doing that one as one movie because it doesn't quite have as much content that would be movie-worthy. There's a lot of more political intrigue and stuff like that in the second one, but not as much and the heavy action sequences. Yeah, and I can also see that just in general, like, character arcs. You just want to follow, like, one character through a trilogy. Mm -hmm. So if they're switching to a different character, maybe like doing the third book might not be the best idea unless Mm -hmm. they do it as like a side story or a spinoff. Yeah. And I could also see them just doing these first two movies and being good to go. That's true too. They don't, I don't even see them needing to do the third one unless, you know, they're wanting to finish out the Paul sequel or a cash grab, you know, trying to 
profit off more of what they've done. <laughs> uh, there is a, uh, as far as I know, still in development, a prequel series being planned for, I think, HBO Max called no. Dune the Sisterhood. Okay, that would be fun. I'm assuming by Sisterhood it's probably going to be following the Bene Gesserit. I think so, yeah. Okay, that would be interesting to see because the Bene Gesserit, they're entire goal in the dune universe is developing this bloodline because they want to find the Kwisatz Haderach as they call him the one who can see the future and the past and the present can see where they cannot and lead humanity down what they call the golden path which is like the perfect way into the future so spoiler alert that's what Paul is supposed to be Technically, yes. <laughs> That's what they assume he will be. Got it. So I mentioned earlier how it was released on HBO Max pretty close to simultaneously with its theatrical release, if yes. not exactly the same time. I think there was like a fight to make sure it didn't happen that way or something. Mm -hmm. um, but still, it was a huge box office success, which usually like the sim the simultaneous release like kills it yep why do you think that is so i know the director put out a statement saying that from day one the movie was filmed to be watched in imax and that's what he wanted that was the pinnacle of viewing this movie in his thoughts so all the sweeping landscape shots all the crazy sound effects and everything it was all made to be seen on that enormous screen so it takes up your eyes and to be feeling the sounds just as much because i remember when we first saw it we were in dolby at uh, amc and literally that first moment in the movie when it's still black on the screen and you hear the weird sardaukar like speaking i remember it freaking moved my seat with the shaking yeah. of those drum beats and everything and then just seeing the sweeping dune landscape and stuff you know it really hit home how enormous this world was supposed to be yeah that's where i think the star wars comparisons come in because like that is the kind of feeling a movie like that is supposed to give you mm -hmm. um i know that like lately the push for getting movies onto streaming services is huge especially you know after the pandemic and everything but dune made a case for no some movies are meant to be seen on the big screen definitely because i remember uh, after seeing it, it was um, it was a month or two after it came out in the movie theaters. I my parents were visiting me, and they hadn't seen it yet, so I wanted to show it to them. Um, we rented it off Amazon Prime, and we're watching it on my TV at home. And I have a fairly good TV, and I have a you know a surround sound system, but it wasn't the grand scope and the majesty that i remember seeing on the imax still an amazing movie yeah but it definitely like the director said was made for a large screen yeah i agree with that so i have not read the books but how would you think the movies compare with the books so i will say the the david lynch one does not follow the books very well. It changes a lot of key things, but the Dune 2021, like I was saying earlier, follows it almost to a T. There are a few things different, but not much at all. So I'll start with the uh, the David Lynch movie. So some of the big things that come out of that one, 
like I said before, you know, we see the Spacing Guild, we see the scenes with the Emperor in his, you know, royal palace with the people. The Emperor is not seen in the books at, until the very end when he actually comes to Dune. Yeah. Um, we never see the Spacing Guild people. Um, like I said about the Harkonnens, the way they are portrayed is extremely different. Um, they are a ruthless people, like they are in the movies, but you know they don't have any of this weird stuff to do with you know diseases being beautiful or the heart plugs <laughs> that they have or any of that stuff. Um, Gady Prime is their homeworld is known to be very you know it seems like they've taken out all natural resources and it's just, you know, a mechanized world kind of thing. So they did get that a little bit more correct. But uh, in terms of how they portray the Harkonnens themselves, it's very much uh, stylized villains. Like, they want you to hate them above all else. Yeah. Um, like, through Fear uh, Howitt's uh, eyebrows, like I just said, are completely hilarious. And then um, having Gurney Halleck uh, in there, they actually got him... A little bit better because they included his instrument, the Balisset, right at the beginning of the movie. You see the first time we see Patrick Stewart, he comes in carrying that really crazy looking violin type thing. Yeah. And that's supposed to be his signature instrument that he plays quite a few songs in the movies on. And then the final thing that I pull out of that book is uh, just the actor that plays Paul. Um, I know back in the 80s, it was a little harder to find competent younger actors, I would say. But um, it is heavily talked about in the books that in this, Paul is 15. Paul is 15 in these books when he comes to Dune. And it's referenced by his mother himself that the Atreides are known to be late bloomers, basically. So he probably looks even younger than 15 when he comes to that book. He's often referenced by like the Fremen and stuff as the man child because he acts like an adult, but he looks like a kid kind of thing. So that's one thing that I felt not necessarily a bad thing, more of a thing that they had to do, I think, for the movie at the time back then. But yeah. it took a little bit away from the story itself, I felt. And I do feel, too, like Kyle MacLachlan is someone who David Lynch works with a lot. Like mm. He's the lead on Twin Peaks. He was in Blue Velvet a couple years later. So I, it might just be that familiarity with the filmmaker kind of thing that mm -hmm. got him that part. That, I could see that. I mean, he still did a, a great job in the movie itself. So it's just if you know anything about the book, then you're going like, it's a little he looks, thing. you know, he looks like a grown man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, when Jodorowsky wanted to make it, he was going to cast his son and his son was like literally a kid. Like, yeah. And I know there's some wonderful child actors out there, um, but I feel like the new movie, you know, they did a good job of casting, you know, I could see like, you know, a Tom Holland style person playing this role because, you know, he's known to look a little younger than he is. Yeah, or even Timothee Chalamet. Yep. They, they did very well with the casting there. Yeah, I think so too. So with the new movie, uh, like I've said before, they did a very good job of following the book. Um, they start off the movie just like they do uh, in the book for the most part. But uh, the book, actually the first chapter begins with the Reverend Mother, Gailas Helen Mohammed, showing up to 
the Atreides household and Jessica's waking up Paul and saying, it's time, you need to get up, you need to see her. That is like the very first chapter of the book telling him that he needs to tell the Reverend Mother about his dreams. And so then the whole scene with the box and everything, very similar to the book. They cover most of it very accurately. But then um, basically in the book, after that, they almost go directly to Dune. They have the scene with Gurney Halleck where they're training him in the weapons room. And then they have the scenes of them actually leaving. But then you're basically on Dune at that point, And the rest of the book is on Dune. So it's, um, they, I know they had to add things for the movie to, you know, kind of tell you what was going on and everything in such a way. Yeah, I, I do feel the movie did a lot of world building. So mm-hmm. is that... Does that happen, like, later in the book, or is that just, like... Which part? Like, all the stuff that happens before they go to Dune? Oh, no. So, um, I think that they took a lot of uh, that first part of the movie to really world-build and to really show the differences between Caladan and Dune, because it's referenced a lot, the, you know, two halves of a coin in this uh, series. And so, you know, Caladan on the one side basically a paradise one of the things they talk about or a quote from the book is that you know we developed paradise on caladan and what happened to us happens to all those who find paradise and live in it we went soft you know so we didn't have to do anything to keep our paradise and so then they come to dune this desolate wasteland where they create a second you know flipping of the coin when we see the Sardaukar world, whereas Dune is basically this dry desert wasteland of testing people. The uh, Seleucus Secundus, the Sardaukar world, is constantly raining, but it's also just as much because it's the prison planet. So there's all these similarities on both sides of two sides of a coin seeing what's going on there. I think the movie did a really good job at that then. Mm-hmm. They did. Um, another thing that they did well... Once you get on Dune, the hunter-seeker scene where the thing comes out of the wall and is attacking him. So that happens in his bedroom in the book. But I think they did a great job of showing him going into the projection to show it because the hunter-seekers aren't supposed to be able to... They detect movement, basically. And so if he's stuck in that thing, it can't really see him. Then he gets it. And it's, it's a great scene that I feel like helps show Paul's training a little bit more because... Paul is a very interesting character. He has the most layers of anybody in the world because the I would say the key groups in Dune, you've got the Spacing Guild that we've talked about. You have the Bene Gesserit, which are trying to lead humanity down this path. You have the royalty, and then you have uh, the Mentats. The Mentats, you know, are Thufir Howitt uh, and some of the other ones because in Dune... They have gone to an alternate history, which I guess you can't really call alternate history because technically it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. But basically in their world, there are no computers because the um, computers and robots you know, tried to overthrow humanity at one point. So it was decreed that we would never have a computer or something that could think like a human. And so that forced humanity to evolve in certain ways. So... You know, we have the Bene Gesserit who are able to manipulate their bodies down to like the cellular level, basically. They can activate individual muscles in their body. 
they can change their voice to use the voice, they can keep themselves just by thinking it from getting pregnant and stuff like that. So they've developed themselves that way. They can also see their past lives, memories, which helps them guide themselves into the future. Then you have the Mentats, who are basically the human computers of the world. They have developed their brain to such an extent that they can take all outside stimuli that they're doing and make these incredibly crazy calculations. And we find out in the books that Paul was actually being trained as a Mentat. So not only is he getting this Benny Gesserit training from his mom, but he's also getting Mentat training, he's getting royalty training, and he has that specific gene sequence that the Benny Gesserit have been looking for that allows him to see the prescient future. So he's got all these things going for him all at once. Then you introduce the spice from Dune, and you have the Kwisatz Haderach, basically. Wow. Now I'm like yeah. looking back, and I'm like, oh yeah, so that's you what see, that is. You see some of the um, Mentats, they do that, they, they, it's very subtle in the movies where you see the, their eyes kind of like flicker white for a second. Yeah. And that's them doing their mental calculations or whatever. And so I thought that was a very smart way to show the Mentats. And then another thing that they did very good in the movies was showing how Paul views the future and how he sees all his stuff. He, or he calls it, in the books, he calls it his uh, terrible purpose. Yes. He's overcome uh-huh. by terrible purpose. You see it in um, the best way when he's seeing the visions of him and Chani and him and the Fremen warrior that he fights at the end. So before that happens, you know, and some people might not really understand what it was showing, but you see different futures where you see him like kissing Chani, but then you also, he says he just saw his death kind of thing where Chani stabs him and stuff. Then you see him, you know, fighting the warrior you see him dying to the warrior. Then you also see him talking with the warrior and the warrior telling him the ways of the desert. So um, Paul is, his prescient future sight basically allows him to see all the possible futures that could come from different actions. And so by looking at all of those, he's trying to choose the right actions and nudge the things taking place into such a way that it comes out with the future that he sees as best. And so... They did a really good job of, you know, that's a hard concept to bring about yes. in a movie. But they did a very good job of, you know, showing, oh, he's seeing all these different things, but you don't know which one's actually going to happen. Yeah, I did catch that, too. So that, for how complicated that is to show in the movie, like, that did come through, like, mm-hmm. I thought. Which, they did, they did yeah. a very good job with that, I felt. They also did a really good job of portraying the Fremen in this movie versus the original movie because they are... You know, there are a lot of similarities to Fremen culture versus, you know, Middle Eastern culture. So they talk about sieges, but they're very deeply religious people. But you find in the the, the books, they're not dumb in yeah. any sense of the word. And I feel like the David Lynch one made them out to be, you know, sort of a dumb, savage people kind of thing. Yeah. But they have simply become so adapted to the desert that everything they do is built around surviving in this desert. And so... I felt like they did a very good job of portraying them more as people than they did in the uh, David Lynch film. Yeah, it really adds more nuance to that. So I I will say one uh, character I felt like they were just kind of giving a a role to was uh, Jason Momoa, bringing him in as Duncan Idaho, because in the books, 
Duncan Idaho doesn't really have that big of a role to play. You know, in the book, in the movie, they make it out to seem like Duncan is, you know, Paul's best friend and stuff like that. Yeah, I got um, like Han Solo vibes from yeah, him. Yeah, he's not really. He's he's mentioned as his, you know, arms instructor. But even in the books, Paul says that he views Gurney Halleck to be the person he's closest to out of his father's lieutenants kind of thing. Duncan is just known as a captain of the guard and very good swordsman kind of thing, you know? So like in the books, his key role, he gets sent to Dune first, like in the movie. Um, But then when he brings uh, the leader to see uh, Duke Atreides, he actually, we find out that he helped save one of their people and so the Fremen want to make him a Fremen as well and so then they work out this deal of him having basically like dual citizenship kind of thing between the two people but then Duncan is brought back because the key difference that I found from the the book and the movie was the traitor aspect so you know in the movie spoiler alert we find out at the end that Dr. Yui you know, takes down the shield and betrays them because the Harkonnens have his wife. Yeah. We don't find that out until the end. In the books, you find out almost like the third chapter in, they literally tell you that Yui is a traitor. The Harkonnens tell you as the reader that Yui is a traitor, but instead of uh, putting him in there, they make it seem like Jessica is the traitor. And so they turn Thufir Howard against her, the Duke has to pretend like he uh, suspects her to keep the real traitor unawares and stuff. And all the while, they're trying to figure out who the real traitor is. So that is one key difference that I feel like they changed there. And then, of course, when Duncan is brought back, he's basically Jessica's watcher kind of thing. He watches her for a little while. Then, like in the, the movie, uh, he does end up finding them out in the desert when they crash he does take them to see Kynes, and then he uh, does die protecting them. <laughs> was he this cool in the books? Because he's very quick. No, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think he wasn't really. Um, but <laughs> also in the books, there aren't really any super action sequences like they show here. So like when they're attacked in the compound, basically, um, you don't really hear big fights happening and stuff. It's just one minute the uh, the Duke is being, you know, stunned by uh, Dr. Yui. And then the next moment we're seeing Jessica wake up to being, you know, bound in her room. And then the next minute we see the Duke is sitting in a hallway kind of, you know, lording over his victory and stuff. And so we don't really see any huge battles happen in that sense so you so i mean duncan who's known for his swordsmanship and stuff you know doesn't really get his time to shine in the books hate to like compare it with lord of the rings again but is it like one of those things where he'll spend like three pages describing like a tree but when it comes to a battle sequence it's they fight he can yeah (laughs) it, it does it does happen a little bit uh it especially happens when he spends multiple pages of paul just 
thinking to himself going like I feel my terrible purpose coming upon me and stuff and then he's like I see this future and I see this future and what am I supposed to do to make this right and then you know you get a lot of uh, thoughts from Jessica and Paul when they're using their Benny Gesserit training to analyze someone's speech patterns and stuff and go like I hear lying in his voice and stuff and so then you hear you they are overanalyzing what that's why that's happening yeah and then I think the final thing I want to say about the the casting and everything is um, I think it was interesting that they made Dr. Kynes into a woman. Because in the books, she's a man. Oh. Then when I was rereading the book in preparation for this podcast, I actually found something that makes a whole lot more sense, especially for the casting purpose, because we find, we, we find out that Chani, who's played by Zendaya, is actually Liet Kine's daughter. Oh. I, I saw that and I was like, that's that's a very, you know, minor thing, but it's a very nuanced thing that I felt was very good once I remembered that line. Because it's literally only thrown out once in the book in a single line. Like they throw it away when she first introduced herself to Paul. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> I want to ask you a bunch of questions. And I want to have them answered immediately. So Art of Clark Silva on Instagram asked, what other sci-fi novels, IPs, would you like to see adapted and why? And what's the difference between science fiction and space fantasy? So I'll start with that. Uh, I will say my absolute favorite uh, book series is the Brandon Sanderson Mistborn series. So it's following a, a young girl who comes into a sort of power she is what's called a mistborn and in this universe they draw power from metals uh so they ingest them into their body and then they call they burn it what they call burning it or something and there's like eight different metals that give them different abilities that all are very fleshed out like being able to pull a metal towards you or push it away being able to sense when someone else is using a metal versus hiding your own and it's it follows a lot with like we were talking about being two sides of a coin kind of thing where each power has its opposite and she's one of these uh special people that can use all eight of the powers but most people that have a power can only use one so she becomes very powerful and it's uh, about them kind of overthrowing this great empire that is built up around them it's very expansive and i love brandon sanderson's books that sounds like that would be pretty cool. For me, well, a bit of a cheat because they did actually make this, but it's one of those that they made one and it failed and they stopped. I kind of would have liked to see more of the John Carter series. John Carter of Mars is my dad's favorite series. <laughs> he loves those books. So I, especially, because I've read the first three and my favorite of the three was Gods of Mars, which mm. would have been the sequel. And the fact that we never got a Gods of Mars movie makes me very sad. I also just don't understand why that one didn't do as well. I thought it was a great movie. Yeah, I think the title. I yeah. think um, someone, because it was going to be called John Carter of Mars, mm -hmm. and someone thought, hey, the Mars part isn't going to, I don't know why they thought Mars was the part that wouldn't have sold tickets, and just this very generic sounding name would have. Someone should get fired for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it, I thought it was. I thought the movie was pretty good, and I I feel like the sequel would have been like way better. Yeah, 
that that's definitely one that they could have gone so many more places with it. Yeah. And as for the second question between science fiction and space fantasy, I feel like there's a pretty... I'm not going to say that that Venn diagram is a perfect circle, but they overlap a lot. Mm -hmm. I would say it kind of goes into what we were talking about with the books that we want to see. I would say Dune goes a little bit more into the science fiction side, I would say, than the space fantasy, only because it has a lot of technology and everything in it, but it I do feel like it it falls in the middle. I would say Mistborn definitely falls into the space fantasy side because it has a lot of fantasy elements to it. It doesn't actually have space travel or anything like that, but I wouldn't say it's strictly just fantasy itself because yeah. it's happening on a different world and things. Yeah, it's like when I think about something like Star Wars, that that's definitely a space fantasy, but uh, I also feel like they have they travel between different locations they have they even added a whole midi chlorians element to the force so they added science to explain the force so i feel like it's definitely more of a space fantasy but science fiction is in there mm -hmm. so i feel like 2001 a space odyssey pure science fiction like there there's no fantasy in that one unless you go and read into the more abstract stuff in that movie I feel like most space fantasies do have at least a little bit of a sci-fi element to them. Mm -hmm. This underscore is underscore Ralph on Instagram uh, asks, how do you feel about Zendaya being billed so high and prominently on the movie poster when she had such a small part in the film? I feel like movies do a lot of that, wherein you know, they try to get hype about a movie by having very prominently in the trailers and everything the actors or actresses that most people are going to recognize. You yeah. know, I feel like there is a good portion of this staff that isn't as recognized as someone like Zendaya is or Jason Momoa is. But in the books, Chani is not seen until the halfway point, like in the books, or like in the movie, where Paul goes out and joins the Fremen, that's when we first meet Chani. And even then, throughout the rest of the book, she doesn't play an enormous role. The book is firmly centered around the politics, Paul and his mom. They are the star people. And so rather than highlight, you know, those two who I would argue aren't as well known as Zendaya is. They chose to, you know, show an actress who a lot of people will know a little bit more, especially since Dune, I think in itself is not exactly a series that a lot of people knew much about to yeah. start with. And would you say that maybe she has, she'll have like a bigger part in sequels? I think so. I'm getting love interest vibes from this. Is this uh, yes. accurate? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she is the love interest. So she will definitely play a prominent role in the next movie. And I am pretty positive that they will take a little bit of, you know, movie freedom with the book to probably give her a larger role like they did with Duncan Idaho in this one because Jason Momoa is so well known, you know? Yeah. Rico Mott asks, splitting up Dune, 
uh, smart or not? I think it's really smart, honestly. Um, you know, I kind of hated when they did it in other series, like with the uh, Hunger Games and oh, stuff yeah. like that. You know, I just <laughs> felt like they were basically going after a cash grab. Because it's kind of like, you know, yeah. the last book in the series, yeah, it has a lot in it, but not you really did not movies. enough to, <laughs> yeah, it made the pacing very slow, in my opinion, for both of those movies. So I think one book series did it, and there were practical reasons to do it for that book series, and then studios looked past the practicality of that and just saw dollar signs. Exactly. I think with Dune, it's actually a pretty smart decision, because... Yes. Like we've said before, Dune was a unknown for a lot of people. And so they had to take a lot of this first movie to introduce people to the world, to describe some of those nuances, to describe the world itself and some of the characters that we're going to see in the second half. And in the book itself, basically is split half and half of everything they followed in the movie where, you know, you see them come to Dune and Paul and Jessica trying to survive the desert, which is fleshed out a little bit more than it is in the movie, but they survive the desert and make it to where the Fremen are and they meet Chani and her uh, CH. And so I feel like it's a very, honestly, a good idea for them to have ended it there because the book has a natural, a minor time skip in that time so i kind of feel like they're going to start up the next movie after that time skip yeah and there's like a i want to say it's like a two or three year time skip so i think he becomes like 18 or 19 or maybe maybe 21 once one of those two but it's you know it's a three to five year time skip and so i feel like they're going to um kick back up either right before that time skip and do a couple of the things that need to happen before the time skip or they're going to start right at the end uh, after the time skip happens yeah uh, i feel like dune is like a big enough book it's not like those it's not like a young adult novel um like divergent which very famously had its second its last movie split up into two movies and that flopped so hard that i honestly don't even remember those last movies yeah yeah that the part two never came so i honestly was even disappointed (laughs) with the books of divergent that last book was just not great so but uh dune dune is like it's a big novel so i feel like it needs a thousand pages close to a thousand pages i think at this point i mean it got two movies and that's also like a thousand page book yeah so, Milady of Disney on Twitter asks, if Dune was made during the golden age of Hollywood, who would you cast in the lead roles? So, I think the uh, original movie that was going to be made, but didn't, had a lot of those actors from the golden age of Hollywood, and I feel oh, like yeah. they would have been fairly well cast. Yeah, the only thing I feel like wouldn't have been easy to cast would have been Paul. Only because back in the golden age, they didn't really use many child actors yeah, they or were... younger looking people. It was very much if you were a man in Hollywood at that time, you had to have that, you know, that suave, almost James Bondy looking face that people 
thought was like you know the most handsome face out there just like doing a google search on stars of the golden age of hollywood right now i'm like all of these men are like and they're not middle-aged but they're clearly like mid to late 30s yeah you could see like <laughs> a gary cooper or clark gable being duke atreides and then yeah orson wells as like you know doofier howard or something then i see a know, lot of dukes yeah. i don't see any pauls <laughs> I'm like, and the only actor who's like young enough for the role, but I don't think he's right for it, is Mickey Rooney. Yeah. It's like, no, I don't see that. I do see um, Catherine Hepburn, though, as Jessica. Yeah, she would be good. And then you could see like a Audrey Hepburn type character as being Chawnee or something. Yeah, you I know? can see that. She could have that kind of youthful vibe to her. Or maybe Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. They would do very well with that. But, yeah. you know, it's it just comes down to the fact that. A lot of people back in, a lot of the actors back in the golden age, they had very similar looks. And a lot of them had looked that way just to make it in Hollywood. So it would have been interesting, but I think it would have been a little tougher to have some of these roles. Maybe like Marlon Brando is like Duncan Idaho, or I can see that too. Yeah. (laughs) James Stewart, who would he play? (laughs) Oh, gosh. No idea. We're on a rockers, everybody. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and we've reached the rotating segment portion of our show. Last time we did uh, reappraisals where we discussed a movie that hadn't been so well received in the past, but you know, maybe we could take another look at. This week, I'm introducing a new one called Double Feature, where we're going to pair two unrelated movies and explain why they would work together. Well, I guess they're not as unrelated, but I thought of a funny one that would be uh, Blade and the Underworld movies, because uh, for one, Underworld is one of my all-time favorite franchises. Uh, Kate Beckinsale and her freaking leather outfit, that gets me every time. She's amazing. But I also feel like Wesley Snipes is an amazing blade and vampire hunter type person so i think it'd be cool to have those universes collide and you know in underworld they're all about oh vampires and werewolves shouldn't mix and now we've got a hybrid and stuff and wesley snipes character is basically like oh i'm a vampire human hybrid so you get all the strengths of a werewolf and a vampire combined well i get the strengths of a vampire and the weakness of a human so (laughs) so i'm gonna kill you all (laughs) Uh, yeah, those are good. Those, those, that's a good mix. Uh, one thing I liked about Underworld is that whole sh- scene where she's like shooting the floor under her, and then yeah, like, yeah, and then like the floor gives way, and like yeah, those things are like really stylistic and yeah, and, and Blade I, also Blade was stylistic, but I feel like it could have gone so much further with some of those movies. I, I love the the scene in the first blade where he's just going through the the nightclub and everything that's always sticks out to me when i think of blade movies but um beautifully late 90s yes (laughs) but i feel like uh combining that with the stylistic approach of underworld i i love the just kind of the blue cast they put over all the movies it gives it a distinct feel that i feel like would be really cool with blade in it (laughs) yeah i think so too uh, the Blade sequels, part two was pretty good, except for the weird rubber person fight scene. Yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And we don't talk about the third one. The third so. one. <laughs> I still remember the super Yay, fake Ryan Reynolds, movie. First, one of Ryan Reynolds' first movies. Yeah. <laughs> There's some things about it that were, like, some of the lines in it were pretty on point, but, like... <laughs> well, I feel like that was one of our first uh, first introductions to Ryan Ryan Reynolds basically playing Ryan Reynolds in a movie. Yeah, he was he was testing out Deadpool <laughs> like he did there. most uh, most of his movies. He just plays himself in those movies, even whatever the character is given to him. And Parker Posey was in that one too. Like, yeah, I love her. They had that weird vampire dog, the little vampire pomeranian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're not the first movie to do that. I would also love to see maybe Underworld and uh, Resident Evil come together. Oh, that would be fun too. I love Resident Evil in itself. I liked the first couple of movies of it. Then they started getting weird, but I still love the movies. I yeah. love Mia Jovovich. They're, they're, but, they're, they're fun. Uh, <laughs> it would be so cool to see, you know, vampires and werewolves and zombies. It's like Pride and Prejudice. Right. And zombies. <laughs> Let's just throw zombies into everything. Yeah. <laughs> I could definitely, like, I, I would easily like watch blade and then after that be like you know underworld sounds good too I'm yeah move for that yeah so and for good measure van helsing <laughs> yes oh my gosh i love that movie so much i need to throw that uh, into my reappraisal section because uh, my love for that movie is itself a reappraisal yeah it's it's one of those movies where it's just like if you watch it the first time you're like this wasn't a great movie but then you just watch it again and it's kind of like this is really growing on me. This yeah, is that's really good. I just really uh, enjoy this. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like every Halloween, I have to put that one Oh, yeah. yeah. That and Hocus Pocus is just like, oh, yeah. oh my goodness. <laughs> well, thank you, Logan. It was a lot of fun having you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Yeah, like I learned a lot more about Dune. I had fun talking about it. I have a much deeper respect for the story mm-hmm. than I did before, and I already did have a lot of respect for it. So, yeah. 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 No, it really... Uh, hearing the movie coming out really forced me to go back and look through what I knew about it and find the things that I didn't remember about it and really go through that so that I knew what was happening before the movie. Yeah, it's a very complicated movie, but I thought, like, especially this new one, they did everything right. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you would like to be a guest on the show, I am not famous. I am pretty easy to find. Uh, You could hit us up on our socials in a place like this podcast on Instagram, or in a pod like this on Twitter. Just send me a message, tell me what you would like to talk about, or I have a list of things I would like to talk about. So yeah, let me know. All right, this has been In a Place Like This. We hope you are not just entertained, but somehow reborn together.